Exodus chapter 24. We're going to be studying in this chapter tonight, but I'd like you to begin, if you've already opened up, by putting a finger there and flipping over to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. Exodus 24 might be called the Old Testament equivalent of a New Testament experience. Something that happened, (coughs) pardon me, on another mountain, in another time, even in another land. See, in Exodus 24, Moses and his friends, along with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, we'll see in a moment, they're going to head up the mountain to see God. And in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, will head up a mountain where they will experience, where they will see, at least Peter, James, and John will see the Lord. In both events, we see the Lord. I'd like to begin by reading Matthew 17 and verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light and behold Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him Peter said to Jesus Lord it's good for us to be here if you wish I will make three tabernacles here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up. Do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Now think about this. What famous Old Testament personalities do Peter, James, and John see on this mountain where Jesus is transfigured? Who are the Old Testament personalities that they see? Moses and Elijah, the two obvious answers. But there's another personality visible and seen in the Old Testament very clearly who they see as well. The same personality that Moses and company will see as they start up in Exodus chapter 24. For you see, Peter, James, and John not only saw Moses and Elijah, they saw Jesus in his glorified, transfigured form. And he has been seen this way before. This is not the first time. Now flip back to Exodus chapter 24. Back to Mount Sinai. Back to the people of Israel who are gathered around at the foot of the mountain. They have heard the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, which we're going through slowly on Sunday morning, bit by bit, studying through and listening to those, looking at those. The people heard those, rumbling, thundering from the mountain as God spoke them in the hearing of all the people. And they were terrified. And the people didn't want to hear any more of the Lord's voice. And they said, Moses, you go for us. You go get the law for us. And so after that, Moses then went up. Exodus 21, 22, 23. And got the rest of the Mosaic law, the ordinances, the law of Moses. One that we've talked about is separate. It's connected to the Ten Commandments, but it's separate. And that the Ten Commandments are a law given for all people of all time. 
Whereas the law of Moses, the ordinances, the rules and regulations are given specifically to Israel. Well, that is past. And the people now are about to affirm their covenant with God. As we get into this, I just want you to keep in mind that scene of transfiguration. That happened on Mount Hermon. Mount Sinai is where Moses is about to head up. At the transfiguration, again, Moses was there as he will be on Mount Sinai. And the transfiguration is in the promised land. Well, Mount Sinai is outside of the promised land. It's prior to. But just keep as the backdrop of our study tonight, because we'll refer to it again later, that scene where Jesus, in his glorified, transfigured state, is seen on the top of the mountain. Exodus chapter 24, verse 1. Then he, speaking of the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Now, we know Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who are Aaron's two eldest sons, they will enter into the priesthood with Aaron, although they won't last for long. You're going to see that story coming up. Nadab and Abihu decide to do things their way in a way that is offensive to the Lord and their lives are cut short. But at least for the time being, here they are along with their father Aaron, their uncle Moses, and the 70 elders of Israel. But there's something that jumps right off the page in this first verse that I think is very interesting. It's stunning, really. God calls them to worship. He invites them to come up the mountain. But He says... You shall worship at a distance. At a distance. Come worship me, the Lord says, but worship at a distance. What a striking contrast between the way Israel was called to worship and the way we worship today. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 tells us, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near. And when we worship the Lord, we are amazingly and shockingly invited to a very different place than Israel as we sang tonight in our worship time. A place where we can sing songs about His arms of love. About that place where we can go. Where we can be safe in our Father's arms. For Israel, this would be almost unheard of to think about being in their father's arms. They would be crushed like bugs. But for us, we're called to closeness with the Father. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near with confidence. Other translations say boldness. What we are called to when we worship God is not the distance of Israel, but we're called into close proximity with the Father and confident intimacy. We need actually kind of an opposite lesson than Israel needed. From time to time, we need to be reminded just how vast, how awesome, how powerful and great our God is. Because in the intimacy of our worship, sometimes we can forget that. When we think of Him as Abba, Father, as Daddy, when we visualize in our minds maybe crawling up into our Father's lap, we need to realize this is the lap of the Creator. This is, these are the arms of Elohim, the God who made everything, the God who is all-powerful, and yet calls us not to worship at a distance, but close. He calls us to come near. Now you might say, well, how can we really draw near? And there may be times where you don't feel like drawing near. 
Israel is a good picture. They had to worship at a distance because God was awesome and their sin was great. And how can we even think, how can we presume to draw near to such an awesome God? Well, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted, listen to this, tempted in all things as we are, yet was without sin. In other words, we have understanding. A father, a son who knows what it's like to be tempted, who knows what it's like to face sin and deal with it, and he did deal with it perfectly. But the beautiful thing here is that he understands our struggle. And we can come before him with boldness. But I want you to hear something else, and it's really the other side of the coin. Something I think is very practical but very important, and it may be specifically for you tonight. That even at a distance, we're still called to worship. Even at a distance, we're still called to worship the Father. Have you ever come to worship and just not felt like it? Have you ever showed up and you're just, you're just not in the mood? Maybe the day's just gone long. Maybe you can't sing because your heart just feels heavy. Or you have trouble praying because your emotions are too dry. Maybe you've got so many issues you feel like a subscription. I'll let you think about that one. Or maybe you're just plain exhausted. You show up. Thank you, Harold. You show up. And you're there to worship, but man, all you can think of is other things or being somewhere else. And you realize somewhere in the middle of it, I'm at a distance here. I can't draw near to God. I don't feel close to Him. Is it hypocritical for me even to be here? And the answer is no, it's not. And here's the reason. The issue of worship is not proximity. It's praiseworthiness. It's not proximity. It doesn't matter how close or far away from the Lord I may feel. That is not the reason I worship. I worship because He is worthy of my praise, whether I feel like giving it or not. And there will be, as I know there have been times for all of you, there will be times when you sit down and don't feel like worshiping. That doesn't excuse us from the call to worship. As Moses and the elders found out, come worship. Worship at a distance, but worship nonetheless. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Mike came up to me a couple Sundays back, actually about three Sundays ago, and he was to do the the communion meditation that morning, and, and he said, Rick, I just don't know if I can do it this morning. My heart's just not in it. And I said, well, Mike, I I wish I had a quarter for every time I had to stand up and preach or teach, and my heart was not in it. Which is, again, not to say, oh, so what you're saying, Rick, is you're you're teaching things you don't believe. No, not at all. I believe everything I'm saying. And normally, about five or ten minutes into any kind of teaching, my heart gets there. But that's not to say that I feel like it. There are times I don't. Sunday morning was a prime example of that. Here I am, I barely had a voice. I was sick and tired. And I didn't feel like speaking. But that wasn't the issue. I was called to. And consequently, again, about five minutes into it, I was very excited to be here. And I was so lost in the words and in his word that it didn't matter. So I said to Mike, I said, you know, it's... 
I'm not sure if it's a matter of, of choice. And he said, well, I know it's not for you. And I said, no, I'm not talking about for me or even for you as an elder. I'm talking about how we feel. I'm not sure that that's the point. I think the fact is that God is worthy of our praise. And so we come and we worship. And we get into His Word and we hand over our lives moment by moment to Him. Not because it feels right every time. It may not. The emotions may not be there. The sense may not be there. You may feel distant, alone, cut off. But God is still God. What's interesting is that as we worship, as we praise, we end up coming near to Him, don't we? Even if we start out feeling at a distance. He is worthy of worship regardless of how I feel. Psalm 18 verse 1 tells us the following. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now listen. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. It's not, I will get saved from my enemies and then I'll call upon the Lord. It's, I'm going to call upon the Lord because He is God. And there's a byproduct of that. I'll get saved from my enemies. I could do a whole lesson on the byproducts of worship. Actually, we could spend weeks talking about the strength that comes from worship. Or the joy that I receive from worship. Or peace. Or insight or inspiration. But these are not the focus of worship. They are blessings that come from it. They're the overflow of the Father's heart. As we go to worship Him, we have to realize it isn't about us or how we feel. Romans 11.36 tells us, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. So remember that the next time you feel far from the Lord or distant, your distance is not the issue. His praiseworthiness is. And God is always worthy of all our praise. And by the way, He's a lot closer than we may feel like He is. Well, let's read on. So they, they go up the mountain. They're going to worship at a distance. Moses alone is going to go further up. And verse 3 says, Then Moses came, and he recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said... All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yeah, right. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And I kind of ask a question. I, I wonder why Moses was up so early. Why is it that he got out early in the morning to build this altar? And, and there are probably all kinds of you know, guesses we can make, and we're not going to know for sure. But something struck me as I was studying this. Moses knew this people all too well by this point. He had seen their behavior. He had seen how they had handled things ever since he came to Egypt to get them and bring them out. He knew the character of the people of Israel. And I really wonder if he was up so early because he couldn't get any sleep the night before. Because ringing in his ears was this statement, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses knows they're not going to do these things. He knows they're not even up to it. These are the people who have whined and complained and freaked out. And verily, verily, they're going to freak out more and more as their journey continues. Moses knows these people. And so, what's he do? First thing the next morning, he's up early. 
Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous. No, not one. Moses knows this. And he's seen it in the people. It's an impetuous phrase, really. All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. I would suggest that we say something more like, everything that you have spoken, Lord, I desire to do by the power of your Spirit. I can't do it in my strength alone. But the people, they were ready to go. Give us the law. Here we go. We're off. We're ready, Lord. Show us. Tell us what we shall do. And we will do it. And so, God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. He literally cuts a covenant with them. And in so doing, He creates the first and only conditional covenant of all the covenants that God will make with humanity and with people. The Mosaic Covenant is the only one that is conditional. In other words, it's the only one where God says, I will do this if you will do this. As long as you're doing this, I will do this. Every other covenant God gives is unconditional. Every other one, going all the way back to Adam and working his way up, and we'll talk about a couple of those in a moment. But the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant with Israel, is conditional. It's conditioned on their response, on their ability to keep it. Why is that? God wanted to make one thing perfectly clear, and I've shared this before, but it's clear that God is the covenant maker while man is the covenant breaker. And we need to understand that. Israel needed to learn that. Humanity needed to figure out before Jesus came that we needed Jesus to come. That we needed grace. That our own strength was not going to carry us into the pearly gates of heaven. God's the covenant maker, man is the covenant breaker. There is none righteous, not even one. And so I'm not sure Moses slept real well on the assurance of the people. So what do you do? What do you do when you know or when you desire, when what you desire to do, you can't do? When everything that God calls you to do, you know you don't have the strength to do, what do you do? You come to the altar of sacrifice, and this is what Moses does, verse 5. He said the young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant. The covenant blood. This has been the binding tie of God's covenant promises ever since the first one. The covenant sealed with blood. And you need to remember this. The covenant requires blood. The word covenant in the Hebrew is berith. Berith literally means cutting because when you make a covenant, cutting happens. Flesh is cut. Flesh is sacrificed in the making of a covenant. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. I'm not going to cover all the covenants. There are seven, possibly eight of them in Scripture. The first covenant was the Adamic covenant. That was the covenant God made with Adam and Eve. And it happened just after their amazing fall from grace in the garden. God turns around and instead of immediately punishing, He makes a covenant with them. And what is that covenant? He says, listen, Adam and Eve, life's going to be hard for you. Adam, you're going to have to work, you're going to have to toil, and the ground is not going to produce what you wish it would produce. Eve, on the other hand, you get childbirth and all the pain that comes with it. Ladies, thank you to Eve. 
But your seed, Eve, is going to crush the head of the serpent. And in this covenant, God did something. Just after making the covenant with them, as He drove them out of the garden, do you remember what He did? He clothed them with animal skins. But to get the animal skins, God had to sacrifice some animals. And so blood was shed. And Adam and Eve were in the first covenant with the Lord. The second covenant comes along in Genesis chapter 9. It's the Noahic covenant. The covenant God makes with Noah as he steps off the ark. And Noah's first act upon stepping off the ark was to build an altar and sacrifice. Covenant cutting. Covenant requires blood. Another covenant God made, this is in Genesis 15, is called the land or even the Palestinian covenant. Not referring to the Palestinian people because there was no such thing as a Palestinian people until Yasser Arafat co-opted the name. But the land covenant, Genesis 15, Abraham is called by God and God says, I want you to divide a heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. Divide them in half and lay the pieces opposite each other. Abraham does this and then he falls into a deep and dreadful sleep. And in his sleep he actually sees the Lord pass through the pieces, the blood on the ground, with a flaming fire pot and a torch. Abraham did not go through. Only God did. It was a one-way covenant, an unconditional covenant. God said, I am going to do this for you. And he promised the land to Abraham. Well, all of these covenants share one thing, and that's the shedding of blood. Why is that? Flipping your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. I'll be reading in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9. This idea of the shedding of blood, it seems brutal. It seems for us almost archaic. And we wonder, what is up with the shedding of the blood? And the writer of Hebrews explains it beautifully. Hebrews 9.15 He writes, For this reason... He, speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now listen closely. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. He's talking about a will, a covenantal will. He goes on and says, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now back to Exodus chapter 24. The Hebrew writer says blood is required because for a covenant to go into effect, there must be a death. And up until the death of Jesus... It was always substitutionary. There would be a death of an animal to substitute for the death that's required or the blood that's required for a covenant. Now back in Exodus 24, notice what Moses does with the blood. They take these animals, they sacrifice them on the altars, and Moses catches the blood in bowls. And he brings the blood over and he does a couple of things. 
One thing that we're not told in Exodus 24 that the Hebrew writer does tell us is that the book, the law, that which Moses has written down is sprinkled with the blood. But secondly, Moses sprinkles blood on the altar. And thirdly, Moses sprinkles blood on the people. And I want you to focus on those two. He sprinkles blood on the altar and he sprinkles blood on the people. Why? The altar, the sprinkled blood on the altar, speaks of salvation. It's a picture of salvation. For every altar built to God in the Bible points to the cross. The altar on which Jesus was sacrificed. And the sprinkled blood points us to the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24 says, We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. So he sprinkles the blood on the altar, and that's a picture of salvation. Of the fact that the people are saved. It speaks of our salvation. Blood on the altar. But secondly, Moses sprinkles the blood on the people, which speaks of sanctification. We've talked about this quite a bit recently. That there's salvation, that moment of coming to the Lord, that moment of knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt, you are a saved person. But that's not where it ends. From there, we move into the process for the rest of our lives of sanctification. And this is the picture as Moses sprinkles the blood on the people. It's the sequel to salvation. And it was the only time, by the way, in all of Israel's history that the blood was sprinkled on the people. Now Peter picks up and applies the idea of the sprinkled blood to the life of Christians in the daily, daily, uh, day-to-day existence. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter says, Christians are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. I was talking about believers. Those who are already saved are chosen to be sprinkled with His blood. It's an ongoing process, this sanctification. The Hebrew writer says it again, Hebrews 9.13, says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, How much more will he cleanse your conscience from dead works? To do what? To serve the living God. The sprinkled blood speaks then of sanctification. So God is the great establisher of covenants, and that's what he's doing here. He's establishing this covenant with Israel. He's sprinkling the altar salvation. He's sprinkling the people, speaking of their sanctification. But this covenant, again, is conditional. It's not just dependent upon Him, it is also dependent upon the people. And this covenant will lead us ultimately to the new covenant, which is unconditional, that has a requirement of shed blood as well. Well, verse 9, reading on. The Bible tells us, Then Moses went up with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God and they ate and they drank. Now I want to give you a couple of quick points and then we have to deal with a serious problem tonight in this passage. Point number one, it's interesting to me what they saw as they looked up to look upon this vision of God. In fact, the only thing they readily could see based on the description here was his feet. (laughs) They saw under his feet that there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky himself. And the rest of it I think was just over their heads. But there's something to understand and I think this is a great verse and you might want to underline under his feet. Just those three words. 
under his feet. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 26. After describing an amazing scene of the four cherubim around the throne room in heaven, Ezekiel writes the following. He says, Above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne. As the appearance of a sapphire stone... (coughs) Pardon me. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above it. And so Ezekiel describes the same thing that Moses sees here and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders they look up and they see this this sapphire uh, transparent sapphire pavement under the feet of God as they look up and they're literally blown away but this phrase under his feet needs to be remembered it's a great thought especially when I get in over my head because think about it folks everything that is over our heads is under his feet And we may feel like we're drowning. We may feel like we're sinking. We may feel like we don't have any answer that's readily available to us. Remember this. Whatever is over your head is always under his feet. It's not a problem for the Lord. When a paralyzed man was lowered down through the roof, the situation was clearly over the man's friends' heads. They didn't know how to get him to Jesus. And so they bring him in over the heads of all the people. And as he comes down, we realize the whole situation was under Jesus' feet. For he had the power not only to heal, but to forgive. When the waves crashed high over Peter's head as he tried to walk out onto the water, you remember the scene. Jesus calls Peter out of the boat to walk on the water toward him because Peter, impetuous Peter, wants to give it a shot. And so Jesus says, come on, Peter. And Peter steps out and he starts to walk. And like a child who can't walk, he begins to slip and he sees the waves crashing and he sinks. And the waves are over his head. But they're still under Jesus' feet. And Jesus reaches out a hand and grabs him and pulls him up and says, Peter, where's the faith, man? And they walk back to the boat. Now, by the way, that's a video scene I want to I replay when I get to heaven. I want to know what Jesus was saying to Peter as they walked back across the sea to the boat. And that's something that sometimes we miss. Yes, Peter sank, but Jesus grabbed him and then together, arm in arm, they walked on the water back to the boat. And in those moments, Jesus must have spoken some precious things to Peter. But the bottom line is, Peter got in over his head. It was still under Jesus' feet. And when the apostles themselves were overcome with grief at the death of Jesus, when they thought nothing could ever possibly be right again, it was all still under his feet. When we get in over our heads... It's under his feet. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 tells us, speaking of Jesus, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Three good words to remember, especially when you're feeling overwhelmed or overcome, or when you're about to say over and out, remember, it's under his feet. Now in verse 11, the second thing I want you to notice here is that they saw God and the last line says they ate and they drank. Now it's interesting to note that oftentimes it was a common practice at the ratification of a covenant to share a meal together. And that's exactly what happens. They go up and they see God and then it says they ate and drank. They had a little feast. They had a meal. And it's a picture here of how when a covenant is given, a meal is shared. And oftentimes the meal is symbolic of or representative of that covenant. What's the big deal with that? Well, we have a meal ourselves that we share, don't we? A meal that we call communion. It was a meal that Jesus instituted on the night he was betrayed. He made a a change though. He took the Passover and he updated it. And he reintroduced it to his disciples as the new covenant. 
Luke chapter 22 verse 19 Jesus said this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant the new covenant in my blood in this case the covenant meal is given before the covenant itself was ratified at the cross so serious Jesus was that his apostles would remember that followers would continue to commune with him that's why we do it every Sunday and by the way we could take it more often in fact sometimes I kind of think we should anytime we're together it says as often as they came together they shared this communion meal together because it reminds them it reminds us every time we share it of the covenant the new covenant in Jesus' blood now we have a serious problem what does uh, Exodus 24 verse 10 tell us happened right at the beginning of the verse it says they saw the God of Israel and again at the end of verse 11 it says they saw God and we have a biblical problem this vision is similar to Ezekiel's vision of the heavenly throne room and you might say well so what's the problem the problem is the Bible says no man has seen God but it says right here they saw God and yet in other places but no man has seen God well how does that work how can no man have seen God and yet they saw God oh it's going to be the Hebrew word for saw right good the Hebrew word for saw literally means ready saw they saw it they saw God how does this work 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us he alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see we saw God well John chapter 1 verse 18 and repeated in 1 John chapter 4 verse 12 John writes no one has seen God at any time and I say but they saw God how does this work we have a contradiction the Bible's falling apart maybe we were wrong no no Moses by the way later will ask to see God in Exodus chapter 33 you may remember the story he asked to see God and God goes no, 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 no because if you see me you're a dead man you can't see me he says literally and live you're toast and so what I'll do for you you may remember this and if not we're going to read this when we get to Exodus 33 he says I'll tell you what I'll do Moses I'll pass by you stand over here in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to take my hand and put it over you to protect you and I'm going to pass by and then you can see my glory as I trail off that I'll let you see even that's going to make you glow like a light bulb and you're going to freak out Israel but I'm going to let you see that now this is all my paraphrase so don't quote me in the way I'm sharing the story but that's in essence what happened Moses wanted to see God it's interesting that in chapter 33 Moses says I want to see you Lord and yet back in chapter 24 he says they saw God well did Moses see him or not if Moses had already seen him why does he need to see him as if he had not seen him before this all can get very confusing this is critically important for us and we're going to call it theology 101 and it's especially important because in, we're living in a world which is increasingly biblically illiterate and where cults are increasingly literate in their teaching which is not biblical and when I talk about cults I'm talking about some of the most well-known Mormonism Jehovah's Witness 
or Mormonism, they have some of the greatest commercials on TV. They really seem like great people. And I like the fact, you know, the no caffeine and the no soda and the family is so important. And on the outside it looks so good, but there is an inherent problem in Mormonism that I will make clear to you tonight. Many of us have friends who are Mormon or friends who are Jehovah's Witness. Or we will have a knock on the door from one of them in the future. And we always freak out. Oh no, it's... They're wearing suits. They're young and they're calling each other elder. I don't think we can talk to them. Folks, we need to be equipped because we're not just talking about people of another faith who we need to prove wrong. We're talking about human souls who need to see the truth as much as we need to know it. So Theology 101. Flip in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We've come at this before. We're going to come at it in a little different direction tonight. But it is so important and foundational to our faith that we need to hear this again and again and know how to apply it. Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 1. This is where the prophet Isaiah will have his vision of the Lord. No one has seen God. Hang with me. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 tells us, In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord. Sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with the other two he flew. And the one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And you might notate this in your Bibles anytime you see Lord in all little small caps there. That is Jehovah. It's the Tetragrammaton. The Y-H-W-H. It's the name that God gave Moses in Exodus chapter 3. It's that name for God. We talked about on last Sunday. We'll talk about more this Sunday. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the, tri- while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. Isaiah is claiming, I have seen Yahweh, but no one can see the Lord and live. No man has ever seen the Lord, according to the other scriptures we've looked at. We'll read on. Verse 6 says, One of the seraphim, One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Keep on listening. But do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And I have to ask the question, why wouldn't the Lord want them to turn and be healed? Isn't that the point? And the answer is simply this, because the Lord, because the people didn't want to be healed. It's not that the Lord didn't want the people to be healed, it's the people did not want to be healed themselves. And God will never cross, interesting, He will never cross your will. 
the Almighty God? Yeah. The great and grand Creator won't cross me? Exactly. The freedom He gives you to choose or reject Him, He honors and He will honor all the way up to the last moment. He will not force anybody to follow Him. And so He says... Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. That is the desire of God's heart, that we return and be healed. And yet, it's our choice whether or not we're going to do this. But answer this again. Who is it, based on what we just read, who is it that Isaiah saw in this vision? Go ahead, you can answer it. Well, you're saying Jesus. You're coming way ahead of me. It's the Lord. Pastor. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. Yahweh. It is God who Isaiah clearly sees. Now skip over to John chapter 12. Unless you are right on top of this, my friend. John chapter 12 and verse 36. And listen closely to these words. John 12. Verse 36. Let's back it up a bit. John 12 verse 35. Jesus said to them... For a little while longer the light is among you. And walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. And then listen, these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. He hid He got out of there. He went to a place where they could not find him. Why? John goes on and explains to us. And listen to what John says. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was, John said, to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, John continues, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. Listen to this. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory. Whose glory? Jesus. And he spoke of him. He spoke of who? Of Jesus. John is talking about Jesus and applies this to Jesus and says that Isaiah said these things because he saw, and the Greek is very clear here, the him, the his, are both referring back to the focus of this passage and it's Jesus who Isaiah saw. It was Jesus. Wait a minute. I thought you said it was Yahweh, the Lord. Yes. That's exactly right. That's what I said. It is the Lord. It is Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. And we have in that passage in John another irrefutable piece of evidence of the Lordship. And I capitalize L-O-R-D as in Yahweh. The Yahweh-ship of Jesus Christ. Now stick with me and think about this. Back in Exodus 24, and you can flip back there now, how do we explain seeing God but not seeing God? 
And there is only one way to explain this. Anytime you see God in the Old Testament, you are seeing Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the physical manifestation of God. That is who Jesus is. He is the one who brings God to bear so that we can see and perceive and understand Him. No man has seen God the Father at any time. For were we to see God in his, all of His glory and grandeur, we could not handle it. And so God presents Himself to us, manifests Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So you're saying God's greater and Jesus is lesser. No, I'm not. I'm saying Jesus is the physical manifestation of God. Jesus is God who we can see. Jesus is God's answer to explaining himself to us, which is why Jesus is called in Isaiah 9.6, not only Wonderful Counselor, not only Prince of Peace, he's also called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. That title is applied to Jesus. That title, which we would think is only for Father God is Jesus and is applied directly to Him. The cults, my friends, have got it wrong. They diminish Christ. They say that Jesus is not God, that He is lesser than God, that He is a created being created by God, but He is not God made known to us. And that's wrong. That's incorrect from a biblical perspective. John chapter 1 verse 17 says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Interesting, the word explained is exegeomai. It's where we get our English word exegesis. Exegesis is a word applied to Bible study. When you exegete a passage or the exegesis of a passage you're studying, what it is is it's bringing the truth out of it. It's seeking to make the passage understandable. Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. He explains the Father to us perfectly. That's what Jesus does. He makes the unknowable, the unseeable God, both known and seen by us. John chapter 14, verse 8. A scene that we have talked about and you will see over and over and it's wonderful. And Philip says, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. That's all we need now, Lord. Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now I talked about the cults for a moment before and here's why. This understanding of Jesus as God is not just a difference of opinion. My friends, it is critical to salvation. Without the right understanding of Jesus, there is not salvation. Let me paint that black and white and clearly. Unless Jesus is seen as God, there is not salvation. Why? Because the Bible is clear if you deny the Son... You deny the Father. You cannot accept the Father and deny the Son. John put it very clearly. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. He wrote, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. The two cannot be separated because the two are one. They are God. 
You can't have an either or. Oh, I believe in God. I believe in Jehovah. The Jehovah's Witness will say... It's just that Jesus is more... Well, he was the Archangel Michael. And now he he became a man. He's a created being. That's what Jehovah's Witness teaches. Gang, Jehovah, Yahweh, and Jesus are one and the same. And you cannot have one without the other. Which is why this is so critical to salvation. And it's not just a difference of opinion. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 19 tells us namely here's the deal that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and so Moses and Aaron and his sons back to Exodus 24 and the 70 elders of Israel saw the Lord on the mountain in the same way as we started out tonight that Peter, James and John saw the Lord in his glory on the mountain they saw the same person Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured in all of his heavenly glory. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, saw God. They saw Jesus, who is always the manifestation of God. Old Testament or New, it makes no difference. He is still the visible representation, the exact representation of God. Now, Peter will later hang his whole testimony on this one event. Which is interesting. Of all the things in Peter's experience with Jesus, the one that impacted him the most, that had the greatest dramatic impact on his faith, was the transfiguration. When he stood on the mountain and he looked up and he saw Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And remember what he said, hey, this is good that we're here. I'll build tabernacles for all three of you. Now Peter was theologically correct. He was thinking of the Feast of the Tabernacles, which celebrated both the past and the future. For Israel believed and taught that in the future the Feast of the Tabernacles would be celebrated again when Jesus comes in his kingdom. Zechariah talks about that. Isaiah refers to it. And so Peter's thinking, this is it. The kingdom's here. It's now. Because there's Jesus and there's Moses and Elijah. Let's build tabernacles to all of them. And he was so impressed by this, later he would write in 2 Peter chapter 1, as his witness, as his testimony, listen to these words. 2 Peter 1.16 We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter writes, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven and we were with Him on the holy mountain. Peter said, man, that was it for me. That's when I knew. That's when I was convinced. Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. Well, back to Exodus 24, verse 12. They saw God. And now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there. The word remain is literally be. Be there, he says. Be there. Be there, or be square. And I will give you the stone tablets which the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And that gives us a little hint as to what the whole point of the law was for their instruction. It remains, I believe, for our instruction today. It's still valuable to us today. Not as something that we can learn to keep, but as something that brings us back constantly to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. 
Well, verse 13 goes on. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant. And Moses went up to the mountain of God. Real quickly, let me point this out. It's interesting. It's mentioned here, and I don't think it's by mistake. Joshua goes with Moses. Moses heads up the mountain, and with him comes his servant Joshua. He's here at the giving of the law. Joshua is. He does not represent the law. Moses does. But who is it that eventually will bring the people into the promised land? It's Joshua. And Joshua is the Old Testament Hebrew name for Jesus. Joshua, it's Yeshua. That was his name. And as a matter of fact, when we get there, it's stunning. The book of Joshua is a picture of Jesus in amazing terms. All the way through, you can track it through and watch Jesus represented throughout the book. It's awesome. But Joshua is here at the giving of the law, and yet he is not a representative of the law. That's Moses. But Moses doesn't go into the promised land. Joshua does. Joshua will lead the people into the promised land. And we have this little snapshot in verse 13 of exactly what Yeshua, Jesus, does for us, leading us into the promised land. Well, verse 14 going on. I'm just about done here. But to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Aaron and her are in child, so are in charge. Sorry. So at this point, Aaron and her are in charge. Moses is up on the mountain. If the people have a problem, they go to Aaron and her. Now, if they had towels, they would be his and hers. Towels. But they're in charge, and this was a mistake. This was a goof. This is one of those major oops scenes in the Bible, for we know what's going to happen, don't we? Moses goes up the mountain. Aaron's in charge. And the people come to Aaron and they say, Moses has been up there a long time and we need a God. How about making one out of gold into the shape of a calf for us to represent God? And what does Aaron say? No, we shall not. Do. No, he says, okay. Hand me, me a hammer. Let's get to work. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Aaron blows it. This is a leadership debacle. He fails miserably. But listen, this is interesting to me. There, weren't, there wasn't just one choice, there were two choices. There was Aaron, and there was also her. And her was not mentioned. Her, apparently, as far as we can tell from Scripture, was not part of the debacle. He didn't hammer into place the golden calf. He wasn't mentioned in conjunction with the making of the calf. I'm not exactly sure where her was, but we see something here. There were two options for the people to go to. They went to Aaron, and that failed them. But there was another option. It was the option of her. God tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that no temptation has overtaken us but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will allow you who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will always provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it God always leaves an option you don't have to follow Aaron down the path of idolatry you can go to her as in this instance well, reading on, verse 15 tells us the Lord, Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. Get this picture, it's awesome. Verse 16, The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. I just love this scene. For six days, Moses is there, and the cloud's covering Sinai, and on the seventh day... 
he called to Moses from the midst of a cloud. Prophecy students, does this ring a bell? Does it sound familiar to you? A voice calling from a cloud on the seventh day. That here we have another picture and they pop up all over the place in the Old Testament. Pictures of what God will do. That at the last day, at the last moment, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The Bible says we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with those who are dead in Christ. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. After six days, after six days, on the seventh day, the Lord called. And I keep bringing this up, but it's, it's such a powerful picture. And I want to share one more thing about this, and we're done tonight. This picture of the church rapture. This picture of six days and then a seventh day of rest. Six thousand years and then the seventh thousand year being a millennium. It's throughout Scripture, but it's also throughout church history. Now, there are those today who would say, no, this is actually a recent theology. Premillennialism, the idea that there will be a millennium, that Jesus is going to come and take the church and then come back and we're going to be here for a thousand years, all that stuff, premillennial thought, that only actually originated in the 1800s. Not so. History proves us, and the documentation is there, that it was the predominant theology of the first century church. For 350 to 400 years, until men like Augustine came along, and started introducing Greek thought into Christianity. And started saying, hey, things are a little better for the church now, so maybe it's not what we thought after all. Maybe we're going to usher in the new kingdom ourselves. But that's not the way it was historically in the church. I don't know if, you, if you've seen or heard about my wife's new email address, but it's, it's really cool. If you ever want to email her, write her a note or whatever, it's aminecomelordjesus at comcast.net. And it's really fun to listen to her give that, like when she's buying something online. Your email address? Yes, it's aminecomelordjesus. Excuse me? She always has to repeat it two or three times because they have no idea. What? Are you serious? Yeah. Amen. Come Lord Jesus at Comcast.net. So drop her a line. But gang, listen to this. If a day is as a thousand years and six days are past, well, we may not have to worship at a distance for that long. I want to read you one final thing. Edward Gibbon was an historian back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He wrote several um, works of history that are regarded even today as absolutely accurate. He also wrote a book called The History of Christianity. Now, Gibbon, you need to understand, Gibbon was not pro-Christianity. He was not a believer himself. He was a historian. But listen to what he wrote. He says, and I quote, The ancient and popular doctrine of the millennium was intimately connected with the second coming of Christ. As the works of the creation had been finished in six days, their tradition in the present state, which was attributed to the prophet Elijah, was fixed to 6,000 years. By the same analogy... It was inferred that this long period of labor and contention would be succeeded by a joyful Sabbath of a thousand years, and that Christ, with a triumphant band of the saints and the elect who had escaped death or who had miraculously revived, would reign upon earth to 
until the time appointed for the last and general resurrection. And he says this final thing. The assurance of such a millennium was carefully impressed by a succession of early church fathers such as Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr lived from 100 to 165 AD. Justin Martyr was a disciple of a man named Papias who was trained by the Apostle John. This is how closely tied these people were. And Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, he lived from 125 to 202 AD. He was another one who was an apostle or a disciple of a disciple of John. Very closely tied to John himself. And their own writings, in fact, Justin Martyr has in his own writings, wrote about the fact that John spoke of these things, spoke of a thousand year reign, which of course John would, he wrote about it in Revelation chapter 20. But back to Gibbon, he says, The assurance of such a millennium was carefully impressed by a succession of early church fathers, such as Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, who conversed with the immediate disciples of the Apostle John, and it appears to have been the reigning sentiment of the Orthodox believers. So I say, put that into your theology and work it around a bit. Because the idea that a time is coming when Christ will call His church home when there will be a seven year tribulation period followed by a thousand year Sabbath on the earth is not only throughout scripture it was the predominant and reigning belief in the first century church so if you want to go all the way back to square one and see what was taught and what was believed that's it well let's finish verse 17 Verse 17 reads, And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. The book of Hebrews will later refer to God as a consuming fire. On the mountaintop, verse 18, Moses entered into the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would continue to lead us up the mountain to see Jesus for who He is. And as we worship You, Father, help us to understand we at the same time worship the Son. Father, help us to see and know You better as we see and understand You through Jesus. That He is the perfect representation of You. That He is the one who who brings all of Your characteristics and Your nature to bear. And Father, as we continue to follow through the journey of the Israelites, as we continue to see how you worked in their lives, teach us in our hearts to reverence and to hold in awe that perfect name that you share with your Son, the name of Yahweh, which we have been speaking about. Help us, Father, not to be those who who vainly throw your name about but who reverence you and who absolutely love you. Teach us through all these things, Father. Again, as we pray off and write them on our hearts, as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.